<clears throat> and what we're going to be doing this morning is starting a series on Ephesians over about 10 or so, I say weeks, wow, someone was very happy about that, um, over 10 or so weeks and obviously we've got Christmas and stuff like that, so obviously Christmas is a big deal, so you know, Christmas trumps Ephesians, no one's got a problem with that I hope, but, um, but yeah, so um, we're going to start with um, me just doing an overview of Ephesians, so obviously, you know, you're like, right, how do we do this in a way that is like, not, you know, so I hope that what I do today is helpful, but I want to paint a big picture. I want to paint a big picture about what Ephesians is about, some, some stuff about the background, the history, the culture, things that are really helpful to know, and that as the, the team over the forthcoming weeks start to actually dive down into specific passages, um, there's, we've got kind of a, a context for kind of understanding more about what they bring. So I'm kind of doing like the overview, flying above the big picture, um, and you know, over the forthcoming weeks we'll be diving down much more um, close to the ground to the passage. So, is that okay? <clears throat> Fantastic. And Tim, I hope you're looking, but there's a picture on my slideshow. I'm not saying anything, but if there's a creative consultant, you need a creative consultant. You know where I am. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, I didn't do the picture. I'm not taking credit for that picture, but I sort of am, so it's okay. So, <clears throat> if you would like to turn to Ephesians, there was a clue there, um, and I'm going to pray. One of the great things about Ephesians 1 is um, halfway through chapter 1 there's a prayer and you kind of feel like I can't really top that better than what's in there. So I'm just going to read from verse 15 but this is a prayer. I'm reading it but this is what we're, I'm praying, we're all praying. So pray this for yourself, pray this for your neighbour, pray this for me um, because we want to get all that we can out of this book. So from verse 15. So for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Why? So that having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might. It's a big prayer. And that's basically what Ephesians is about, unpacking it. So um, let's start to look at it. So um, Louise is going to be just hopefully catching up with me as I'm going through the slides. So keep your eyes on what we've got, um, and uh, yeah, let's, let's get going. One of the things I wanted to recommend for people is some resources. So for some of you who are readers and are into, uh, you know, like you like reading books and, and digging deeper, we obviously can't cover everything in the entire book of Ephesians because we'd have a series that lasts pretty much for a decade. Um, so there's some really good books out there about Ephesians. And again, where do you start? Um, so many, but I want to pick out three that I found, uh, you know, useful and helpful, and they're really accessible commentaries as well. So um, there is obviously the Bible Project video series on YouTube, which, if you do know, brilliant, is what we looked at when we had Hope Reads. And if you don't know, you can just go to YouTube and search for the Bible Project, and you will waste a lot of your life just watching these really well done videos um, explaining concepts from the Bible. Um, but three commentaries, that I, again, I'd recommend you could get all of these on Amazon. 
Um, N.T. Wright, or Tom Wright, who was the Bishop of Durham and who is a theologian genius from the Church of England, has written um, a brilliant commentary series. You can't go wrong with any of them called The New Testament for Everyone. And he has one specific, particular volume called Paul for Everyone, The Prison Letters. And in that, he is basically looking at Ephesians and uh, a couple of the other ones, just walking through the book and just picking out some kind of history and the passages. So it's a really good one to pick up, really well written, written just for uh, just normal people. He, he didn't write it for scholars or academics. He just wanted to write it for, uh, you know, people who just wanted to get more out of, of scripture. Um, another one, which is a little bit older, is a guy called William Barclay, who is a theological professor um, and actually based in Glasgow for a season. Um, and he, again, does much the same thing. Um, he has a series called the Daily Study Bible. Um, and one of the volumes, the letters to the Galatians and Ephesians, looks through those two books. He's really good because he basically is a bit of an expert in Greek. And so he'll unpack some Greek words in a way that is really practical and easy to understand, which really helps. So I really recommend him. Um, and the other one, and this one is a, this is a, those two are quite thin, which makes me happy. But if you like a thicker book, you know, if you're, I don't mean thicker as in, you know, the quality of the content, I mean the size of the content. Um, the, uh, the message of Ephesians by John Stott, which is from the Bible Speaks Today series, is also really good. Just again, uh, John Stott is a, a well-known uh, theologian, um, but he's also a pastor, he led churches. And so each of these guys not only are super clever, they know how to pastor churches. So they're looking at what does this mean theologically, but also practically in day-to-day -day life. And I would I really say you can't go wrong with any of those. So if you feel that way, you want to do further reading, background reading, there's no test or homework, but there's good starting points. Okay? Is that okay? So when you look at a book of the Bible, you've got to ask five key questions, okay? Who wrote it and who's it written to? When is it set? Where is it set? You know, what's going on in the world, in the culture, in the history at that time? Because it helps us understand things. What are they saying? And why are they saying it? And if we answer all those five questions, it gives a framework for uh, getting the most out of it. So looking at those five questions, that's what we're going to be covering today. And I'm going to do it in three sections, okay? Three sections. So we're going to look at the controversy of Ephesians the context of Ephesians, and the content of Ephesians. Okay. So what's the controversy of Ephesians? What does that mean? Well, this is where we're going to look at the who question. Who is the author and who is the audience? Now, if you've got Ephesians open, look at verse 1 of chapter 1. And all of your Bible should say Paul. Yeah? Everyone got that? You think, well, what? Okay, well, that's not controversial, is it? Paul, just to refresh us, was a Jewish fundamentalist who had a crazy conversion experience to Christianity, totally and utterly did a 180-degree flip on his kind of beliefs and his lifestyle and ended up starting loads of churches and supporting church leaders, and he wrote about half the New Testament. But actually, there is a debate amongst scholars whether Paul actually wrote the book of Ephesians. And you think, well, it says it's Paul. Why is there a discussion and debate? Well, I'll tell you. Some people feel that 
Actually, when you look at Ephesians in the Greek versus the other letters that Paul wrote, there's a very different style of writing. There's a different vocabulary used. There's a different kind of the way the words are used, and there's a different style. And so some people just say, well, it doesn't read like the same guy. So maybe someone just said Paul for whatever reason, but maybe it wasn't the Paul. Paul. Another uh, argument that people put forward is that when you read a lot of other Paul's other letters, like Corinthians and Romans, he lists lots of names of people. He says, say hello to so-and-so. How is so-and-so doing? Kick so-and-so out. Bring so-and-so back in. Say hello to the people who live da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, he, he has these relationships, these friendships, and so his, his uh, other letters are really personal towards the end. But Ephesians doesn't have any of that. Now, we know that Paul has a lot of history with the Ephesian church because uh, Acts 18, Paul visits Ephesus. In Acts 19, he goes back to Ephesus and he actually lives there for a few years working with the church. And then in Acts 20, he's passing by Ephesus and he sends a message to the leaders of the Ephesians church to say, meet me in Smyrna, which is a city nearby. And basically he has this massive farewell, goodbye, weeping, I'm never going to see you again because I'm going this way, you know, keep going, well done guys, off, I'm going off. And so there's this sense where he knows the church really well, there's obviously a heart connection with the leaders for sure. And so why would he write a letter to the Ephesians and not say anything like hi to any of these people? Why would he not ask, how's so-and-so getting on, or what's going on, or how are you? He doesn't do any of that. It seems a little bit strange, and so some people say, well, this is why we don't think it's Paul who wrote it. Maybe someone wrote it on his behalf, or maybe someone interpreted words, or took a message and shaped it, maybe he dictated things, and they kind of left the personal bits out. So some people believe that. But some people think, well, no, Paul did write it. One of their arguments is, is, well, it says it's from Paul. Some people would say, yeah, there is a different vocabulary. There is a different style of writing. But all that does is shows Paul's development of his style, his development of his thinking, his evolving theology. So actually, yeah, that doesn't matter. Um, some people say, we think it's Paul because three times in the letter there's um, kind of a reference to or metaphor used of being in prison. And Paul, in Acts 28, is in prison. And so they're saying, look, this shows. This was Paul. He's writing. He's, you know, talking about his circumstances in prison. That's filled into his letters. There we go. And another argument is that actually Ephesians and Colossians, which in Colossians was written by Paul, share 55 verses. 55 verses of overlap. So they're saying, look, he wrote that one. Surely he wrote this one. So, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. People are discussing, are discussing, debating. Obviously, what do you guys think? But there's also another scholarly debate, yay, about Ephesians. Scholars love them. And they actually debate and say, it actually isn't written to the Ephesian church. And you're like, really? But my Bible, look at Ephesians 1, verse 1 says to the Ephesian church, to the saints in Ephesus. Has everyone got that in their Bibles? So, scholars, you're clever but stupid. Surely, it's from Paul, it's to Ephesians. What's the big deal? Well, 
the earliest manuscripts, the earliest copies that we have of the documents for Ephesians, which wouldn't have been the original, they would have been a couple of hundred years old, but the earliest ones we have that are reliable and complete actually don't have the words in Ephesus in them. They would read something like, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So later on, translators and interpreters have added in Ephesus. So, really, why would they do that? Well, back then, obviously, there wasn't you know, the Royal Mail, postal system, stamps, etc. So when letters would be written, they'd be written on papyrus, rolled up, sealed with wax, and then delivered by hand by someone who not only is known by the sender, the writer, the author, but also known by the audience. So, you know, you can vouch that this is from the person who wrote it, because I know the, the deliverer. Um, so you don't need to put an address on it, because you know, oh, Andy's just given me a letter. He says it's from Nick and Jan Treadgold. I know Andy, I know them, I believe it. Okay, I'll take your word for it. So, that's one argument for that. Another argument is, well, again, if it was written to the Ephesians, why are no Ephesian individuals or Ephesian leaders mentioned? Also, in uh, chapter 1, verse 15, and chapter 3, verse 2, the author, whether it's Paul or not, he actually suggests and writes something which, which kind of makes it seem like he doesn't actually know them, and he's writing on the basis of a reputation of what he's heard about them. Finally, when you read all of other Paul's letters, Corinthians, Galatians, Colossians, all, I mean, all of them, he's actually, more often than not, going after specific issues, specific pastoral issues, like in Corinthians, where they're crazy charismatics who are doing crazy things, and he's like, sort it out, get some order, stop the sex stuff that's a bit weird, come on, guys. Or he's saying to the Galatians, stop being legalistic. It's grace, it's not law. Or to the Colossians, stop being weird, mystical Gnostics and being like, ooh, it's so spooky. Yes, it's heaven, but it's to earth, it's both. But Ephesians doesn't read like that. Ephesians reads very broad, very big picture, very almost general. It doesn't seem like it's specifically going after a, a certain false teaching or partial issue. So why would you write a letter to a church that you know well but not specifically address issues that you know would be in the life of the church. So, is everyone's faith okay? You're not questioning Christianity at this point in time or anything like that. These are actually really healthy things to talk about because if we say we love the scriptures, we want to understand that the scriptures are from God but also in history, in time. So what's going on behind them? So who was it written to? If it wasn't written to the Ephesians, who was it written to? We know that it was the Gentiles because it talks about the non-Jews. And in Colossians 4, verse 16, it talks about a letter to the church of the Laodiceans. So actually, some scholars believe that maybe Ephesians wasn't actually Ephesians. It was a letter to the Laodicean, which is another church in another town in that area, which was nearby. And actually, maybe what happened is someone, because when letters would be written... They could be copied and passed on, and they go round and round like circular letters. And maybe someone got the letter from Ephesians, the Ephesian church, and just assumed it was to the Ephesians, when actually they got it from the Ephesians. Um, and the first guy, a guy called Marcion, in 150 AD, who kind of collected all of Paul's letters that we have in the New Testament, he actually called it 
the letter to the Laodiceans. So actually, my proposal for Ephesians, the controversy is this. Paul is the author, and what he was writing was, to a, was a circular letter to Gentile churches, non-Jewish churches, in the region of Asia Minor, which is Turkey, which is where Colossae is for Colossians, Laodicea, and Ephesians. He wanted this letter read, copied, and passed around all these churches, and that's why Paul doesn't name names, because he's writing to a, an area, not just some specific place. He's not speaking to specific issues, because he's writing to an area. And actually, what's just happened is, somewhere along the lines, someone's made an assumption of who it was written to, when actually it was written to a much broader area. Okay? So it is still okay for it to be in the Bible. It's still inspired scripture. Okay. So, what about the context? That's the controversy. Is everyone of you with me? So look at the context. Because Paul was in prison and he talks about it, you can date it to roughly AD 62. Roughly AD 62. And that's probably, if you think about it, in Ephesians 6, he talks about the armour of God. Probably because he's chained to a Roman soldier all day, every day. I need some inspiration. Oh, hello. Ooh, look at your helmet. Ooh, look at your breastplate. Ooh, look at your sandals. It starts writing. So, if Ephesians is a circulator, if it's written to churches in a region, what is it about that region that's helpful to know, to unpack the meaning? Now, I've got a map, and oh, my arrows are not arrows, they're blocks. They're meant to be arrows that point to Ephesus, Colossae, and Laodicea. That isn't some kind of editing or rewriting of history I've done here. Um, but Asia Minor is basically Turkey, what is modern-day Turkey. It was a Roman province, in particularly Western Turkey, which meant that geographically it was a really good meeting place for people from Asia, Europe, and Africa because it's smack bang between all of them. So it was really diverse as a region in culture, in language, and in its religions. And it had been conquered by Alexander the Great, and therefore colonized by the Greeks, who basically came and brought their influence and kind of imposed their culture on it. So what you've got is an area really, really pagan, really, really diverse in terms of race and language and culture, and also it was the richest province in the Roman Empire. It's really wealthy because it's right next to all these kind of bodies of water and seas. It's like it's at, the, at one end of the Mediterranean Sea. So everybody who's basically bringing goods and stuff from Spain in, on, onwards to the east is going to land at, guess where? Ephesus. Hello, boy. So, so Ephesus is a major city there. And Ephesus itself was rich, famous for silver. If you know in Acts there was a riot because the silversmiths felt like their, their trade was going to be disrupted because all of a sudden people convert. They don't want to buy idols made of silver anymore. They want to worship God who doesn't have visible images. So they kick off because they don't like it. Um, and the other thing that's interesting about this region is the seven churches of Revelation are all in this region. So it's a key region. It's a key region actually. It was a hotbed and a birthplace of a lot of Greek philosophy. And so basically, the letter to this region of Asia Minor is written to non-Jews, diverse in race, in language, in history, in faith, in beliefs, 
who were probably pretty wealthy generally. And Paul's speaking to them because they're not Jews. So they don't have a Jewish background or understanding. There would be some Jews there, but by and large, it's a non-Jewish area. So he's like, how do I explain the things of God to a people who don't actually have any understanding of the Old Testament? How do I tell people about the story of God where they don't know maybe who Moses and David and Noah and Abraham are? How do I do that? And that's interesting for us today, isn't it? Because we're not in a Christian society anymore. People don't have an understanding of Noah and Abraham and Moses. They might have some understanding at a level, but not an informed level. You know, it's not like people have been taught from a young age of these things, by and large. So Ephesians is relevant for us. How do you explain the gospel of God to people who might not have a concept of God? Or they might have a pagan concept of God. A, con- a God of philosophy, of reason and logic, which is subjective. So do you see how Ephesians is relevant to us? So I'm going to come into land now. The content. What is it about? What is Ephesians about? We look at the what and then the why. What does the letter say to this region of Asia Minor? And therefore, what does it say to us? The letter starts off with Paul. He gets right into it. He writes about the spiritual blessings that we have because of Christ. And what he does is he unpacks all that God has done. And then it's like as he's writing and he's flowing and he's worshipping, he he just kind of seamlessly moves into prayer where he's basically saying, I've just told you all the stuff that Jesus has done for you and now I want to pray that you get it, that you get it, which means it's not just about the theology, it's about the experience. Theology is not something to be like, I know this, tick, I can pass an exam, but it's meant to be experienced, it's an encounter, it's meant to lead us into worship, it's meant to lead us into intimacy and knowledge. And Paul's saying, I want the eyes of your heart to be opened to all that Christ has done for you, because then your eyes are open to all that Christ is, and Christ is God. I want you to know God. So that first question for us ourselves but also the Ephesians is do we know what Christ has given us do we know do we know what the words are or do we know what the words mean how familiar are we with redemption reconciliation justification all these big scary words that actually have so much meat and substance to them that when we get one of them in a new way when the eyes of our heart are open in a new way to one of them it shifts everything and that's what Paul's saying. Get this in your heart. Don't be philosophical Greeks who had it in your head. Live it by knowing it. And then he moves into chapter 2. He reminds them what they've been saved from, what they've been rescued from, what they've been delivered out of. He's saying, you've been taken out of this stuff, this immorality, this philosophy, this mess, this whatever. You were sinners, but now you've got a glorious hope. You've got an inheritance. You've got a purpose. So the second thing is this. Do we know what Christ has taken us out from? We know what he's given us, but if we don't know what he's taken us out from, we won't actually be able to move on because we'll always be looking back, looking over our shoulder feeling entrapped, feeling ensnared, feeling hindered, feeling like we're dominated by a past that actually we've been cut off from because of what Christ has done. 
He keeps moving forward. And what he's doing is he's building an argument. He's building a flow. And what he's basically saying is, to live a Christian life that is successful, actually, you need to know what God has done for you, and you need to know where he's taken you from. And if you get those two things right, nothing will hold you back and nothing will stop you. He talks about how salvation is not just about removing sin, but actually it's about addition. It's removing a sin, the subtraction of sin, but the addition of us into a people. A people with a purpose. The church. Once they were far away from God, but now through Christ they've not only been brought close to God, but they've actually been brought close to people. God's plan of salvation is not an individual, yay, I'm forgiven and saved. It's like, it's not now longer a you and a me, it's a we and an us. And if we don't get that, we actually, don't, we actually miss out on the fullness of what God's got for us. So the third thing is, to the Ephesians and to us, do you know who Christ has connected you to? Do you know what he's given you? Do you know what he's taken away from you? And do you know who he's connected you to? He moves forward into chapter 4. And Paul, like he does in all of his letters, he shifts from the theological into the practical. He moves from the theory to, uh, so this is what this looks like in your day-to-day life. He starts saying to them, don't let your diversity rob you of blessing. Don't let your differences rob you of blessing. Because salvation actually is a thing that is common and the most, therefore, it trumps everything else. Any difference or distinction that you have, intellectual, racial, gender, class, wealth, are trumped by the commonality of salvation. First and foremost, you are brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you know that Christ has called you to unity? Was he... What is he? So we've got this flow. He says, what has he given you? What has he taken away from you? Who has he connected you to? Are you united with those and living in unity? You with me? And he keeps moving. So four and five, and the guys are going to drill down into this even more. He talks about how um, actually how you live your life matters. It's fine understanding all these wonderful things and be like, yeah, I'm in the church and I'm united. But actually, knowing Christ should shape what we do. It should shape what we don't do. Salvation should affect the day-to-day. We're called to unity, but we're called to holiness as well. And he says, don't live like Gentiles. And he's writing that to Gentiles. Don't live like everybody else because you're different. You're people with a purpose, connected to God. You've been saved, you've been forgiven. Live like it. Live like it. As he moves forward, he starts to look at relationships. He starts to look at what, um, and he picks three key relationships. He looks at the relationship between a, a husband and a wife. He looks at the relationship between parents and children. And he looks at the relationship between masters and slaves, which you could say is in effect employers and employees. And he says, do you know what? You're called to love. You're called to love. And love looks like sacrifice, service, and submission. Sacrifice, serving, and submission. You're called to unity because of this great salvation. You're called to holiness because of this great salvation. And you're called to love because of this great salvation. And he comes to the end of this letter and he starts to round it off. And this is where he talks about the armor of God. It means that if we follow Christ, 
We're now soldiers expected to serve. Warfare, attack, defense are actually part of our daily lives. And now we can start to work spiritual warfare and go, ooh, demons and stuff like that. And that might be part of it. But in the context, what he's saying is this. Actually, for, a, for all of us in the day-to-day, a massive part of our spiritual warfare is living in unity. It is living in holiness. And it is living in love. And he's saying, Christ calls you to stand. Christ calls you to stand in unity with others, in holiness and in love. Even when it's hard, you fight. Even when it's hard, you stand. You fight for love. You fight from love, for holiness, for unity. So when we come down to Lent, this is my final point, the last question, why was Ephesians written? Well, there's two occasions in the letter where after Paul unpacks some sort of profound revelation that he's excited about, he shifts into prayer. He's saying, I've just told you this, but I want you to get it and I'm going to pray and I'm writing my prayer in your letter. So if he's saying, I'm praying two of my big points, I want you to get it, they seem to be big things. The first one is the wonder of salvation. We have to get that. We have to get that. We have to get what Christ has done for us. We have to. Because if we don't, we just sit on a Sunday mornings, we listen to a, we sing songs, we listen to a speech, we get coffee, and that's it. But life doesn't look actually any different to Gentiles that we live amongst. So we have to get what he's done for us. The other one is this. We've been saved into a people. He prays that we understand that we have been saved into a people, but not just a people like, oh, great, it's like a club, yay. A people who have got a purpose, which is demonstrating the kingdom. So the two things, as it were, almost the wise of Ephesians is this. Get what God's done for you. Get that you're now part of a bigger thing than yourself. Christ has connected you to God and to his people. Now live like it. That's the why of Ephesians. God has connected you to God and to his people. Live like it. And over the next few weeks... Various people are going to come and just unpack even further what that means.